morning. Please turn in your Bible this morning to Acts chapter 4. We're going to start with verse 23, and we'll be covering all the way to chapter 5, verse 16 this morning. Acts chapter 4. 3,000 people had been saved in response to Peter's preaching, and the apostles had been teaching the new believers in the temple. While on temple grounds, Peter and John healed a man who had been a paraplegic for 40 years. Peter and John told the people that this healing was done by the power of Jesus of Nazareth, whom God had raised from the dead. This was particularly disturbing to the Jewish sect known as the Sadducees, because they didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. These leaders had Peter and John jailed overnight and brought to a hearing the next morning. When questioned about the healing, Peter doubled down on his claim, saying, It was by the name of Jesus of Nazareth, whom you crucified, and whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. The leaders were then in something of a bind. If they punished Peter and John, they may lose support from the people who rejoiced at this miracle. But if the rulers did nothing, this miracle tended to support the apostles' message that message would just spread even more. The rulers decided just to let Peter and John go with a strong warning that they must not speak about Jesus anymore. The apostles openly defied that order, saying that they must speak what they had seen and heard. And that brings us up to today. Let's read Acts chapter 4, verses 23 to 31. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles, the people of Israel, in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal, and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and spoke the word of God boldly. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would teach us this morning through the examples you give in your word, from the lives of Peter and John and the other apostles, and from Barnabas, and from the negative example of Ananias and Sapphira. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Peter and John had spent the night in jail and had just been released after their hearing before the Sanhedrin. They went back to the believers and reported what the Sanhedrin told them. Then they prayed the prayer that we just read in verses 24 to 30. Let me point out several things about this prayer. First, 
in verse 24, Peter addresses his prayer to the sovereign Lord who made the heavens and the earth. The implication is exactly what we saw in the book of Daniel, that regardless of appearances or circumstances, God is ultimately in control. He is the sovereign Lord who made the heavens and the earth. That doesn't mean everything will go well with us, as we will see later in Acts when the apostles are beaten. But it does mean that nothing is taking God by surprise. Even the crucifixion was what God, quote, had decided beforehand should happen. Second, in verse 25, Peter says, You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Peter's quote then is in verses 26 and 27 comes from Psalm 2, which was written about a thousand years before Peter's time. Peter is recognizing the inspiration of the Psalms, that they are from the Holy Spirit through David. Although God uses human authors like David in the writing of his word, ultimately the Holy Spirit is using those authors' own experiences, vocabularies, and styles of writing, and guiding them in such a way that what they write is exactly what the Holy Spirit wants to say. Third, the last part of verse 26 and all of verse 27 is a quote from Psalm 2, verses 1 and 2. The question in Psalm 2 is about why the rulers of this earth rebel and rage against God and his anointed one. Now, even before Jesus' time, Jews understood the anointed one in Psalm 2 to be referring not just to King David, but to the future Messiah. In fact, that's how it's interpreted in the Dead Sea Scrolls, and that's how Peter interprets it. So in verse 27, Peter says, Jesus is that anointed one. In other words, the Jewish people, the rulers in the Sanhedrin and Gentiles like Pontius Pilate and other Romans, raged against God and his anointed one, Jesus the Messiah, when they crucified him. In Psalm 2, verse 4, it says that God laughs at them. Finally, in verse 31, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Now notice that these are the same people who were filled with the Holy Spirit a couple of times before in Acts. I believe the baptism of the Spirit is a one-time event that happens when we first get saved, whether we experience anything or not. But the filling or empowering of the Holy Spirit may happen repeatedly in a believer's life. Now, starting in verse 32, the topic changes. Let's read verses 32 to 35. All the believers were of one heart and mind. No one claimed they had any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them that there was no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. Verse 33 again says, With great power the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. In Peter's messages so far, we've seen that he always preaches the resurrection of Jesus. Now in verse 33, we learn that it wasn't just Peter who did this, but all the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. 
The story of the resurrection was the central theme of the gospel message from day one. I emphasize that because there are some scholars and pastors today who want to say that the resurrection stories are just symbolic narratives and that Jesus only rose spiritually, but that his body stayed in the tomb and rotted. But the preaching of the resurrection was a central theme of the gospel from day one. In fact, the philosophical and historical evidence for Jesus' resurrection is overwhelming. I've got a couple books in my library that each provide 700 pages of evidence. The reason scholars and some pastors deny the resurrection is not for lack of evidence, but because, like Sadducees, they just don't believe God raises the dead. No amount of evidence will convince them otherwise. Frankly, it boggles my mind how some people can claim to believe in God, but deny that he can raise Jesus from the dead or do miracles. Anyway, this passage teaches that some believers even sold land and property to help others in need. The rest of our passage this morning gives two examples of this. Barnabas on the one hand, and Ananias and Sapphira on the other. Let's read about them, starting in verse 36. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold the field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but he brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. And Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not just lied to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out to be buried. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, Tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, How could you conspire to test the Spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard these events. Now Luke is contrasting the honesty and generosity of Barnabas with the dishonesty and self-seeking of Ananias and Sapphira. Verse 37 says that Barnabas sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet which is just a figure of speech for entrusting the money to the apostles to distribute as the need arose. Just a quick sidetrack, this was absolutely not socialism. Unlike socialism, it was not a government program, and it was entirely voluntary. There is nothing voluntary about socialism. The issue, however, is that Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold some property, just like Barnabas did, 
but they brought only part of the money to the apostles. Verse 4 is clear that they didn't have to give any money to the church, or they could have just given a part of the money. In other words, if they had said, hey, Peter, we sold this property for $50,000 and we'd like to donate 10000 to the church or even 100 to the church, that would have been perfectly okay. In fact, if they didn't want to donate anything, that would have been perfectly okay too. The problem was that they lied, saying that they were giving all the money they made on the property, when in fact they were only giving part of the money. They deliberately lied, evidently wanting the church to think they were more generous and godly than they really were. In fact, I suspect they were trying to buy honor and prestige in the church. Anyway, Peter accused Ananias of lying to the Holy Spirit, and he accused Sapphira of conspiring with her husband to test the Holy Spirit. Now, in Ephesians 5.24, Paul says, Wives should submit to their husbands in everything. So wasn't it right for Sapphira to submit to her husband in this matter? I once had a pastor who taught that Ephesians 5.24 meant that a wife should submit to her husband in absolutely everything. Even if a husband told his wife to sell herself into prostitution, she should do it. Yes, he actually said that. Nonsense. You can't just take one phrase in the Bible and interpret it apart from everything else the Bible has to say. For example, Peter certainly didn't think Aunt Sapphira should have submitted to her husband in this scheme of theirs. Sapphira should have said, forget it. Ananias, I will have no part in this lie. But since they conspired together, both of them fell under God's judgment and fell down dead. Now, some think that was too harsh. But if it was, it was not Peter who was being harsh. Peter didn't take their lives. God did. God gives life, and he can take it back at any time for any reason. We'll talk about what reasons God might have had later on. Our passage ends with verses 12 through 16, which talk about how the apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people. People from towns all around Jerusalem began bringing their sick to the apostles to heal. Some even brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. We are confronted again with the issue of signs and wonders. Some of our charismatic friends are convinced that these signs and wonders are continuing today. And I think they are absolutely right. I've mentioned over and over again a book called Miracles by a conservative biblical scholar named Craig Keener. He personally traveled all over the world examining miracle stories. He wrote a two-volume book containing over a thousand pages documenting miracle stories. Even if only one-tenth of what he wrote was true, it confirms that God still does miracles today. Most of these miracles, however, were done overseas in third world countries. And my guess is that miracles happen with much more frequency there than in America. First, because we live in a culture of rampant skepticism and unbelief. And second, because God has blessed us with an amazing medical system. And God works for us through doctors like Luke and nurses like Casey to bring healing to people every day in America. People are not so fortunate in the third world, and God intervenes miraculously more often there. One caution, though. 
Some people often talk about how God is doing miracles every day. Those who say that so those who say that are usually watering down the meaning of the word miracle. When I was in graduate school at the University of Missouri, Sheila and I were out of money and didn't have any credit cards. I lived miles away from the university and from my job, and our only car was running on fumes. If I didn't get money in the mail when I left for school and work that day, it would be a long, dark walk home that night. After a lot of prayer, I stopped at the mailbox on the way out of the trailer court, and sure enough, there was a check in the mailbox. Some might say that was a miracle. It might have been providential, but there was nothing miraculous about it. Providence is something that occurs at just the right time, maybe through divine intervention. A miracle, on the other hand, is usually something that cannot be explained by purely natural means. For example, there is no good natural explanation for someone walking on water or turning water into wine or instantly healing someone who has been blind or paraplegic all their life. That is miraculous. I think God may work providentially in our lives every day, often without us even knowing it. I don't think he does miracles in our lives every day, at least not in mine. Those who say God does miracles in their life every day have good motives. They want to glorify God. But I think they lose credibility when they say everything is a miracle. (coughs) So what else do we learn from this passage? First, fear God. The theme of fearing God is repeated three times in this passage. Verse 5 says, And great fear came upon all who heard it. Verse 11 says, And great fear came upon all the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Verse 13 says, None of the rest dared join them. This is not just talking about reverent awe and obedience, which is what fearing God usually means. This is more like the kind of fear instilled in a boy whose mom says, You just wait until your dad gets home and I tell him what you've done. It's the kind of fear that Jesus talks about in Luke 12, verses 4 and 5, when he says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who can kill the body, and after that have nothing more they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Satan does not have authority to cast people into hell. Only God can do that. If we are deliberately thumbing our nose at God, we better fear him. Paul writes, be not deceived. God is not mocked. I think the Ananias and Sapphira story is a case of how Satan is trying to derail the church from the very beginning. And God takes drastic action to put fear in the hearts of those who would deliberately try to mess with God's church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul writes about those who are causing divisions in the Corinthian church and says, you all are God's temple. And if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. I think that both Acts and 1 Corinthians contain serious warnings not to deliberately undermine God's church, whether that be by buying prestige or influence, as apparently was the case with Ananias and Sapphira, or by sowing divisions with lies or malicious gossip, 
as in 1 Corinthians. Whatever the case, God takes it very seriously when people deliberately try to undermine God's church, and those who do it should fear him. Second, in verses 29 and 30, Peter prays that in the face of the ruler's threats, God would enable the believers to speak the word with, of God with boldness and to enable them to do signs and wonders. I find it interesting that they did not ask to be spared from suffering or even the execution. They asked for boldness. I don't think it's wrong to pray to avoid persecution, but that should not be our primary concern. Our primary concern should be boldness in being faithful to God. And finally, the believers in our passage this morning show remarkable love and concern for each other, even providing for each other financially. Now remember, Acts is a history book. It tells what happened, not necessarily what must continue to happen. I don't think this is telling us that we all have to sell everything and give the money to the church. But I think it does establish a principle that we see throughout the New Testament of generosity and caring for each other. Traditionally, Baptist churches have taken a benevolent fund offering to help out those in need. Personally, I think helping others in need, and especially those in our own church family, should be part of the regular budgeted ministry of the church. Paul wrote to the church of Galatia, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially those who belong to the household of faith. So, fear God, pray for boldness, and be generous. Let's pray. Lord, as we face uncertain and troubling times, give us boldness to be faithful to you and help us to be generous to those who are in need. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.